This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we welcome two-time winner of the O. Henry Prize, Ron Rash, the author of numerous novels, short stories, and poetry collections, including New York Times bestseller, Serena, and most recently, Above the Waterfall. In a conversation with NYPL's Jessica Strand, Rash discusses narrative, Appalachia, and finding the universal in a particular setting. This Above the Waterfall is ultimately my most hopeful book, which uh, if you've read my work, you know it's not raising the bar too high. But um, in, this, in this book particularly, I wanted to uh, write about uh, beauty and wonder uh, as much as possible. And I have two voices, but the voice I'm going to read from is from a, a woman who has survived a school shooting as a child and she's found that the only way she can survive in the world is to reconnect uh, world, word, and wonder. And uh, she has this intense interaction with the natural world, and she's also had to create a new language, a language that has been influenced by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I think you'll hear some of that intensity of sound in her voice. I hope you do. And in this particular scene, she's describing, uh, it's almost nightfall in the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, she is uh, describing uh, uh, the black-eyed Susans, uh, very beautiful flowers, very intense yellow glow. And she also, at the end of the, this little scene, she will describe uh, or imagine going to Lascaux, where the cave art is in France, because she views that world as one where nature and humans were so close or, you know, there was no, you know, uh, in a sense, no gap. And uh, so, though sunlight tinges the mountains, black leather-winged bodies swing low. First fireflies blink languidly. Beyond this meadow, cicadas rev and slow like sewing machines all else ready for night except night itself. I watch last light lift off level land. Ground shadows seep and thicken. Circling trees form banks. The meadow itself becomes a pond filling. On its surface, dozens of black-eyed Susans. I sit on the ground, cooling, soon dew damp. Near me, a moldboard plow long left. Honeysuckle vines twine green cords, white flowers attach like Christmas lights. I touch a handle slick from wrist shifts and sweaty grips. Memory of my grandfather's hands, calluses round and smooth as worn coins. One morning I'd watched him cross the field, the still or rippling soil, in its wake, a caught wave of cilian shine. 
but this plow has wearied into sleep. How long lying here? Perhaps a decade since saplings and sawbriar rise amid broom sedge. Above all else, those bold yellow blossoms in full petaled bloom. What has brought me here? A deer emerges from the woods, nose up, stilt step, then steadying paws, another hoof lifted. Dark rises around me. The black-eyed Susans float like water lilies. All else disappears, but they hold their yellow glow. Moon mirrors, sun ghost, dreams abeyant. When the night pond floods its banks, I walk the trail to the state park truck. Last go. What wonder to have made such a descent. Tar pitch, torchwood, swabbing stone with light. Swerves and drops and slant downs. Dark rushing up behind each step. Then to find them there in the cave's hollow core. Bison and ibex, but others lost elsewhere to the world. Saber cats and woolly mammoths, Irish elk all live motioned in the wavering light, girthed by curves of stone. Amid it all, the runic handprint. Where less arts veil between us and the world. How strange that Hopkins' quill scratches let me see more, envisioning before seeing. But the first message there inside the cave walls what wonder yet echoes from the world's understory. And one more paragraph, uh, certain words that I just love and I just try to get them into anything I can write. And one of my favorite words is murmuration. If you know what that is, it's uh, when starlings uh, gather and move as one. And, and, and it's amazing to watch that. I'm sure you've seen it. And just this little paragraph where uh, Becky, the narrator, is seeing that. A hayfield appears, its blonde stubble blackened by a flock of starlings. As I pass, the field seems to lift, peek to see what's under itself, then resettle. A pickup truck passes from the other direction. The flock lifts again, and this time keeps rising, a narrowing swirl as if sucked through a pipe. And then an unfurl of rhythm sudden sprung, becoming one entity as it wrinkles, smooths out, drifts down like a snapped bedsheet, then swerves and shifts, gathers and twists. Murmuration, ornithology's word poem for what I see. 200 starlings at most, but in Europe sometimes 10,000 enough to punctuate a sky. That's, that's really beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Now, I, the sound is so wonky in here, so if you, you can literally, it's like a mosh pit at a rock concert. The closer you get, the better you'll hear. So please, I will not jump into the audience. You can come close. Um, I, I wanna ask you, well, I, I was gonna start with a different question, but there are these two voices, which is the voice we just heard of Becky, and then there's the voice of Les, 
who's the sheriff, who's very taut and sort of precise. And um, to write in these two voices, was it difficult? Was it fun? Was it, how did you decide to do it? Well, it, I mean, sometimes writing can be fun. I, I, the pleasure for me always is when I get to the point in my drafts where I'm rubbing vowels and consonant sounds off one another. Right, right. And uh, with less, you know, uh, I did a, less of that, though I, I hope this colloquial language comes through. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always the challenge uh, to try to make two utterly distinctive voices, uh, two uh, utterly distinctive uh, sensibilities. Um, but I thought it fit these characters. Uh, you know, even the sense that Becky is always in the present tense, less is in the past tense. Uh, but also, it, I think it has something to do with their view of the world. Uh, Les, like Becky, has had a traumatic experience uh, that has given him a great sense of guilt. Uh, unable to understand his wife's depression, he has said something that has caused her former wife to uh, commit, try to commit suicide and come very close. So his language and his sensibility, his desire to see the worst in the world, which he often sees as a sheriff, is a way in which by just focusing on the worst of the world, he's almost able or feels like he can almost exonerate himself from what he did. You know, if the world is such a horrible place that I'm just one among many who have done this. But he's also too honest a man to know that's completely true. And, and for me, this is ultimately a book about redemption, about two people, Becky seeking the light, the wonder, knowing that she cannot survive without it, Less, not so, you know, going the other way, but uh, in a sense, they uh, they begin to uh, in, in their interactions uh, redeem each other. Um, you, I read that this novel went through many incarnations, and that it took a while to write. And was it that? And I also read that you don't outline your novels. So, was it that? the past and the present made its way in slowly? Was it the voices that made it in slowly? I mean, how, how and why that evolution and, 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 and how does it look now from where you began? Well, I, I, it looked, I look at it with great relief because it was supposed <laughs> to be published, published a year ago and, and I knew it wasn't ready. And then I think everybody at Echo knew it too. They weren't telling me that, but I think in their hearts they knew it. Uh, but the key was finding Becky's voice. Be Becky's voice, the voice I've read, was not in it. And, and I knew I needed that. I needed it for a number of reasons. I, I wanted to give a sense almost of a musical score with this intense uh, uh, sound play in her work and then the uh, more leisurely prose. But also, uh, I wanted to be true to the world. And I think to be tr as, for an artist to be true to the world, uh, that the artist has to acknowledge the darkness, and, and I, I certainly have done that in my work, <laughs> but um, uh, you have to acknowledge the wonder, uh, the beauty, uh, the possibility of redemption. And so for me, it made the book more honest. Uh, it allowed me to use what I've learned uh, writing four books of poetry, and uh, I hope make a better book, yeah. Right. Um, place is so important in, in all of your work. Um, you know, the, the North Carolina, the, the hills of North Carolina and Appalachia. And so I, 
I, I read this about, um, I, I, in, in Above the Waterfall, you know, the sheriff says, Les says, everyone's connected, if not by blood, then in some other way. And I wondered if this was true in where you, where you live and where you are, that you feel that way, or does it make sort of better fiction? You know, I mean, is it, is it that sort of close-knit community that you feel that everyone has some relationship with somebody else? If yeah, not, I, I think that's true of any small community in the right. world. I mean, that you, you know, you know people, particularly if, uh, as my family has, you've lived in one place for generations. Uh, but I always think about that whenever someone might perceive that as being somehow limiting, that uh, I love uh, Eudora Welty's quote, one place understood helps us understand all the other places better. And sometimes I, you know, I find it exasperating that, and I'm called a regional writer, as if you know, New York is not a place, you know, <laughs> or Paris. Uh, you know, uh, ultimately, I think what, as, uh, uh, as a writer from the South, I mean, what makes the writing worthwhile is not that it's just showing these exotic Southerners, but that it connects ultimately, it's true to the place, right, yet right. at the same time, it's true to, uh, to what it means to be alive in the world, wherever you are. And, and uh, if it doesn't do that, uh, I failed as a writer. I, I, well, more about place, because I was thinking that um, you're, you, I mean, you're able to describe the vegetation, the crevices, the animals, the sky, the mountains, and I'm wondering if, I mean, this is to get away from regional writing, but if, it, if, it, if you ever say to yourself, like, this next book, no, I'm too familiar. I, wanna, I want to escape the place that I that I know so well, and in that escape, find, you know, some other world? Or is it just, this is the place that feels most comfortable, and this is the place that's easiest to exist? I mean, what, what is it? Is it, has you, have you ever thought, I'm going to set my next book in Columbia? Well, I, I might, but uh, I, ha I feel like I have to exhaust uh, uh, my particular place. Uh, I mean, Joyce, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Joyce, uh, but um, Joyce felt Dublin was enough. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, he's as regional a writer as I know. Uh, my favorite French writer, John Juno, uh, certainly, once again, uh, the, that rural area of France, he, he finds everything he needs there. Uh, I'm reading, uh, I've been reading Mo Yan recently uh, and uh, read Sorghum uh, and, and his novels once again. But also the, uh, I, and there may come a time, I, I don't know, but the stories keep coming out of that, it's almost as if they are kind of coming out of the landscape for me. Uh, and ultimately, uh, as I say, I think uh, it's, it's my way of connecting, uh, you know, I, I mean, one of the interesting seeming contradiction I think of literature is sometimes when it's the more regional it's the more universal at the same time because if you get to, to the truth of a place that truth is going to resonate I mean once again back to the idea what does it mean to be a human being alive in this world or alive in the past so uh, uh, I love the place I will say one thing though that that does I think that I am interested in as far as landscape and that is how the actual landscape affects the psychology of people. Uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that if you grow up in mountains, your view of reality is different from if you 
say, grew up in the Midwest or you grew up on the coast. And, uh, and I find that fascinating. And one, one of the uh, aspects uh, that I found interesting as uh, my books have been translated into other languages is that I get emails and letters from other people in the, you know, whether it's in Oh, you the, refer to them as mountain people. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, whether it, yeah. in Andes or in China, you know, mountain people, and, and they say, yeah, I connect with that. Uh, and what do you think that is? I was going to ask you that. I mean, what is it that, you know, there's a terrain that escapes, you know, that it sort of far surpasses continents and countries and everything else, and it has much to do with a landscape where, what is it? I mean, what are the mountain people? When you yeah. get these letters, what is yeah. it that they relate to so much? Well, they, they connect to, you know, to what I, I play off of again and again in my work when I, when I set my books in, these, in the Appalachians, and that is that... I think what happens to so many people who grow up in mountains is, is there's a feeling on one, 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 one level that the mountains can be sheltering. You know, it's almost like a womb-like protectiveness that those mountains give you. It, it, it keeps you, the, the rest of the world, the, away. But the other aspect uh, is the sense that uh, if you grow up in the mountains, you are constantly being reminded of, of how finite and small your life is. And I think that part can lend itself even to a kind of fatalism uh, and, and, and a quote that I tell myself and, uh, and I kind of keep in the back of my head is that in, in, some, in some of my books, I feel like landscape becomes destiny, you know, that those two things merge totally. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, when we're talking about regionalism and, and certain types of writing, um, I mean, it seems that in the United States, sort of southern writing has more, is, is something that people pick out more than talking about the western writers. Or, and I'm wondering if the southern tradition or what has become really the new south, because we're much more, I mean, our culture is sort of blending with the north and the south. And, and is there a new kind of southern writer uh, or is what is the state of Southern literature right now? Is it does it exist in the same way that it did, you know, in the time of sort of O'Connor and Faulkner? And I mean, is that wh where is it now? And, well, I, I don't know that I can speak for uh, all writers from the South, but certainly I feel that uh, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously there are novels that are set in Atlanta, which is uh, you know a, a urban setting and. And I think there, there are new problems that writer you know address uh, certainly, and and I think it changes certainly. But but I, I think the strength of Southern writing, uh, or writers that I love from the South, uh, has been and and uh, today I think is still true is is the language. I mean, and I'm not talking about the colloquial language. I'm just I'm talking about the love of of, of language, the love of words, and. Uh, and I think that is, is, has always been its strength. And the reason that it's revered, uh, uh, you know, not just in the, in the South or America, but overseas. And, it, and it's really kind of interesting, man. I'm going to France next week for a book tour. And, and the French never see, I mean, they, they're aware that of the Southern tradition in a way, but they see us as American writers. Right. Uh, you know, they right. see Faulkner as an American writer. They see me as an American writer. And, and, and that to be honest, is the way I want to be seen. I don't right, want to be right. seen as, as being limited in any way. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, when you don't, because you don't, we'll go back to your writing style. And 
outlining. You don't outline, but you start with an image. I read you, you said this in a piece. And I'm, I'm wondering how that unfolds and, and what are the images? I mean, is the image of the landscape that you're describing is an image of something you saw in a newspaper or a photograph? I mean, how, how does this work? I mean, how, how do you begin? Well, uh, yeah, it, it, it does begin. This book began with an image of, of trout dying in a stream. Uh, that's all I had. And uh, the, the danger or the, the inevitability of writing this way is that you, there comes a time, usually about a year in, where it just seems hopeless, you know, and I'm ready to give up. And this book, you know, several years in, and, and I kept trying to quit on it. But there you know, certain lies that writers have to have to, to survive. And one I believe and make myself believe is that if that image is deep enough in me, that the book is already written. And, and uh, I think of Mike, how Michelangelo, would, when he saw the, the block of stone, he, he believed the, uh, the, the finished statue was already in it. And I make myself believe that. And, and that, that, that's gotten me through some tough spots, yeah. It's like the prisoners, you know, those, those, uh, those Michelangelos leading up to the David, they're all... They're like trying to pull the rock aside to emerge, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, I, you teach uh, at, what is it? It's at Western, Cal Western Carolina, yeah, Western Carolina University. University. And I'm wondering, because you're a, a distinguished professor of Appalachian Studies, am I right? And so I was, because it's, it's the only department in the country of that sort, or are there many others, or... Well, uh, I think it's just they, they had to have something to call me. <laughs> yeah. what, but what does that look like as a, I mean, what do you, do you teach the literature, the music? Oh, yeah. um, what is it? Yeah, I, I teach the, the literature. I mean, I teach, usually teach a fiction writing class, and I, I have taught literature classes. I, you know, actually, I love teaching uh, particularly British literature. That's... And what do you teach when you're teaching British literature? Who are the uh, teach, authors that you I'm love? I'm selfish. I teach the ones I love most. Uh, Keats and Shakespeare and Yeats. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, Hardy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's fun, you know. Uh, you know, Beowulf. I even love Beowulf. Uh, and, um, you know, that's always the child at 8 o'clock getting students to pay attention to you talking about Beowulf. Uh, was there a book that you read uh, when you were a reader young that made you want to be a writer? Was it, was it Beowulf? No, no, <laughs> it wasn't Beowulf. Was it Far From the Maddening Crowd? Well, you're was getting it... close. Uh, <laughs> Jude the Obscure. Yeah, actually it was uh, Dostoevsky. Oh, really? Yeah, I was 15 years old and I was in, uh, making a D in my biology class and I was on the back row and I, I was reading Crime and Punishment and I... I got to that scene early in the book where the pawnbroker is killed by Raskolnikov and, and the sister, and I, I, I almost, I don't know, I, I felt suddenly, well, I, I entered the sublime, I'm sure, but I, I just suddenly felt like, well, for the first time in my life, I felt like I had not entered a book. The book had entered me. Right. And I think Dostoevsky tends to be probably my biggest influence in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, I continue to see And what him. is it about his writing? What is it? Uh, the, the seriousness of it, uh, the complexity, uh, issues of doubt and faith, uh, never handled in a trivial way, uh, uh, and just the uh, insight into human psychology. Uh, and, 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 and that thing that you can't teach in a creative writing class, uh, 
how to tell a story and how to make, a, make characters that, that, that haunt the reader. And his characters do that again and again. I, um, I mean, I, 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 I hate sort of doing this to somebody, putting them on the spot, but, you know, it's one of the fun things once in a while with interviewing. So I was reading a review of, the, of your latest book, and the, read, and the writer ended his piece by saying, there's no denying Rash's grasp of North Carolina landscape and its reflection on the oft-tortured soul of its denizens, making this novel one of his most successful ventures into p poetic humanism. And I thought, poetic humanism. And I thought, maybe I should ask him, do you see yourself as a poetic humanist? And what do you think that is? I, I don't know. I, I kind of like it. I mean, it, I well, think it's we, positive. Well, we just, well, we were just talking about Dostoevsky yeah, and the yeah. sort of humanity. Well, the humanism. And, and, yeah, and yeah. the humanism of it. I thought, well, actually, I should, because your work is, it is poetic, um, yeah. you know, and, uh, and also you're interested in redemption, I think, in, yeah. in most of your books, yeah. the power yeah. of well, nature and landscape being larger than ourselves and that, they, and that it has a healing element to it. Um, but so I thought, well, maybe that's... So, you know, you could coin yourself now as a, as a poetic humanist. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> from, from what I read, I mean, I, I don't know that I would call it, use that term necessarily, but uh, I think with Becky's voice, uh, I mean, I hope you feel this intense humanism, this intense uh, and, and poetic, Tim, but, but I, I think once, sometimes when I, I was thinking about this book, I thought, you know, I'm writing a book that probably 20 years from now will tell most people what it felt like to be a human being because uh, we're, we're becoming something else, I think, and that, maybe that's good, maybe it's bad, depends on your point of view, but what disturbs Becky is that uh, there's a sense that uh, people are becoming, because she's so one with nature, that people are becoming uh, where they cannot see reality without a screen. Uh, there's a moment where in the novel where she notices that when people get out to take pictures of the mountains, they, the first thing they do is put a screen up. They put the, the, the uh, camera up, and she finds that very disturbing. It's almost as if it has, everything now has to be filtered through a screen, and, and she finds that it's just a, a way of not connecting to the world. Well, that, I mean, that was, I think that was true also with her relationship with, you know, the, the character. I mean, I don't want to give too, but, but I, I think that, um, I mean, you do touch upon that because we live in a time where we're much more comfortable to isolate ourselves because we can become so sort of paranoid and we're much more interested in taking pictures of what we do than actually experiencing it. And these characters are full of experience and full of also... And, and wounded by experience, too. I mean, it's a way of be becoming vulnerable. Um, I'm wondering, uh, as we talk, what... Uh, you, you published your first book in your 40s. And were you writing before? And did you not want to publish before? You didn't care? Or you were working on things that weren't ready yet? Or, I mean, how, how, how did Ron Rash to be a published author? Well, very slowly with a, a, a lot of very poor writing. And, uh, and I'd read enough to know it was bad. I really did. And uh, there was something in me that just wouldn't give up. Well, I know what it was. I, I made a decision when I was about 27 that I would rather really 
give everything I had to being a writer and fail than to live my life not knowing. And for a long time, it looked like I'd failed. Uh, but I think in a way that the fact that I published later was the best thing that could have happened to me as a writer because I was solely concentrating on my craft. I was reading intensely. And, uh, and I think sometimes success is not good for an artist early. Uh, and I, uh, I feel very happy and satisfied that what attention my work has gotten has been very slow coming. And what was the turning point with the first... Was it a novel first, or was it a book of poems first? Uh, well, I'd published uh, three books of poems, poems and I think two books of stories before my first novel. And, and novels tend to have a visibility in the United States that uh, uh, stories and, and, and poems don't. But um, I think uh, a, a big part of it was probably the novel Serena. That, that book got more attention than, by far than any other book uh, I'd you, had. But you, I mean, I read that you prefer the the short story of all, I mean, more than novel writing or poetry, that somehow it combines the two in a way, the precision of the language and poetry and then the sort of storyline and the building of character through, right, through story. Yeah, yeah, I love short, I think short stories most, by far the most difficult to do well and because there's so little margin of error and yet at the same time you have to have all that precision that you might have in a poem but you also have to have a, give the reader a sense that the story is fully told. Right. The, you know, the reader leaves feeling, okay, I, I've seen this. And uh, a really good short story very often will uh, allow a reader to glimpse someone, a character, and know everything that has happened to this character and everything that will just in that moment. I think William Trevor does this as well as anyone, but certainly uh, Alice Monroe does it, and uh, one of my favorites, Flannery O'Connor. Chekhov obviously does it as well. Yeah, that's, that to me is the wonder of the form. No, I mean, I think when a short story is great, it's, I mean, it is difficult. I'm wondering what you've been reading lately, since you just mentioned these authors, that, you, that you've really loved. I'm reading uh, Carl Nosgaard's My Struggle, which is magnificent. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have read that, uh, the Norwegian writer. And, and I love what he said, particularly about art. Uh, you know, that he, he, he says that uh, he has this moment where he, he says, you know, that he goes against all the postmodern theoretical stuff. He says that the mood that can be evoked in writing is not that it keeps us from the world or fails us, but it, that's what brings the world, brings about reality. I love that. I've got that, I wrote that down this morning because I was rereading. <laughs> so this, this will be my little teaching lesson. Uh, he says, uh, the case that language cloaked reality in its moods, but instead reality arose from them. He was talking about reading Adorno, but I, I think he's absolutely right, about, and Rilke, and I think he's absolutely right about that. It's the mood, the, the mood of something in us that's being, you know, whether you buy the idea that language can communicate in other ways. Uh, it, and it makes us, uh, it enchants us. I think it enchants us and it also, I mean, someone speaks to an emotion that you feel through literature, you feel understood. And I think that's part of. I'm wondering if there are classics too. I mean, we've got Nosgaard, but are there classics that you go back to time and time again? Yeah, I, uh, I read a Shakespeare play every two months. Is there uh, a favorite, or is it? 
Wow. Well, I, I love Macbeth and uh, Hamlet the most, uh, but I, I, I love it all. I, I mean, I, he's the writer that I don't know how a human being did that. I, I really don't. I don't know how anybody can be a human being and write at that level. I, I really don't. And the more I write, the more I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad it happened. Uh, you know, it's almost made me believe in, uh, you know, alien visitors from, uh, z you know, planet Zeron or something. But, uh, but I also go back and read Moby Dick. That's my favorite American novel. I go back, I reread uh, Brothers Karamazov. There's a great new or fairly new translation of that. Yeah. that uh, but, yeah, you know, I read, uh, I read ver uh, ver as much as I can. I mean, one of the worst things about writing novels is that... Uh, I don't get to read as much, but uh, I usually put in an hour in the morning. I'll read something, and uh, you know, and I, I read a lot of poetry. Uh, I've been reading, rereading Derek Walcott, who does these amazing things uh, with uh, uh, his poetry, particularly in voice. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I love Seamus Heaney. Uh, go back to him. Go back to Keats. Keats I always go, love to go back to. Yeah. Uh, so many great words. Yeah, and so little time. <laughs> Well, I, you know, we're, we've, we're sort of at, at the end of our um, time, but it's been wonderful. And we, we should all read your words, which this book is terrific. So I, I, I'm really glad that you came and talked to us about it today. I'm going to go out to the audience and, and see if anyone has any questions for Ron. Let me give you this so you can be heard. Hi, I just had a... Uh question about your, how you approach the daily craft of writing. Do you write in the morning or do you write in the evening? you write a certain amount of words every day or for a certain amount of time? Yeah, yeah the question is my routine as a writer. Uh, I usually write, well, this summer I've been writing probably six to ten hours a day. I've actually had more time this summer than I've ever had, which has really paid off because I feel good about what I'm working on. But uh, I found I have to do it every day. I have to make it as natural a part of my day as eating and exercising. And uh, this morning, I wrote two and a half hours before I came over here. I mean, I made that a priority. And uh, I feel like I have to. Otherwise, I, I feel like I've lost a day. Yeah. Oh, hi, Ron. Uh, following up on the poetic humanism um, theme, um, have, you, have you ever or have you ever thought of um, applying those skills to writing lyrics for music? Uh, well, I think like a lot of writers, I was a failed musician. Uh, early, I, you know, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. Uh, that didn't work out. Uh, but uh, I've actually had some, some of my lyrics, uh, some of my, particularly uh, I, I write a lot of metrical poetry uh, uh, made into uh, songs, you know, where people have taken the, uh, the lyrics, and, and I, I'm very flattered by that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love music. I think one of the great gifts to my generation as far as writers, is that we listen to so much music that I think that made us better writers. I mean, just because you're, you hear rhythms, you know, you're immersed in rhythms, and, uh, you know, uh, that, I, I was thinking about that the other day, that, you know, that, that probably is not, a, you know, all that rock and roll maybe made, is going to make me deaf, but, you know, maybe a better writer as well. Do you have any favorite musicians from their lyrics that you really like? Oh, yeah. Uh, I love, uh, you know, we'll talk contemporary, uh, but uh, Steve Earle, Lucinda Williams, uh, certainly Towns Van Zandt, uh, 
Yeah, I, I love, you know, uh, li li people who can really write compelling lyrics. I, Bob Dylan, of course, uh, certainly. Uh, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of music. Uh, R.E.M. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 I do. I mean, I listen to it all the time. And, and I listen to older music, too. I mean, there's certain... Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I listen to some classical, but I, but and I love it. But but I also write. You know, mainly it's uh, rock and roll and singer songwriters. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook, and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.